Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm probably doing a little better than you. You're a little under the weather. Yeah, I mean, part of it is uh, our landlord put in these new windows and left a thick layer of dust all over the apartment, which my asthma was not happy about. What are we watching today? Well, today we are taking our fourth trip down the avenue of adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. With Jekyll? I'm going to really try to stick to the original pronunciation. <laughs> we've, been, we've been really bad about it, but it is... Jekyll and Hyde is the proper original pronunciation, and we, we have been bad at being consistent about it. I'm going to try and be more consistent about it this time. But uh, yeah, we're watching the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, starring Frederick March, directed by Ruben Mamoulian. Sounds like Babulian, like the French word for, like, broth. Hmm. Okay. Well, he's going to be cooking up a storm <laughs> for this next film. It's definitely a good movie. Yes, I, I've been pretty excited about watching this. Yeah, I know it's one of your favorites. I worry that this will get boring for the listeners, but I have a pretty big crush on like every single one of these stars of like all of these movies that we're watching. Yeah, you've like, got... Like last week was Colin Clive, this week it's Frederick March. Mm-hmm. And you've got a little bit of a crush on Bella Lugosi, too. I mean, that might just be a crush on Dracula rather than <laughs> Bella. <laughs> well, before we get started, should I go into a little bit of detail about the author? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Robert Louis Stevenson and his book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, before. Uh, we went into it a bit at length in our sixth episode, which covered the 1920 feature film version. Uh, so we'll try not to retread too much old ground. I think in that episode we mostly talked about our own kind of personal histories with that book. And a lot about the Barrymore family. And a lot about Wishbone. Uh, that, yeah. that came up as well. <laughs> Robert Louis Stevenson was born in 1850, and he passed away in 1894. He was a Scottish writer who was most well-known for uh, Jekyll and Hyde from 1886, as well as a few other books, um, including Treasure Island from 1883, the novel Kidnapped, which is a historical fiction novel from 1886, same year as Jekyll and Hyde, and A Child's Garden, which is a collection of poetry about darkness and solitude. Oh. Uh, it's also sometimes published as Penny Whistles, okay. uh, and that was in 1885. So it's kind of important to note about these really notable works is they all came out within like three to five years of each other. Okay, so he had like a very productive period. Yeah, and that's not to say he didn't like do things outside of that, but it, it just is interesting that it was like within these few years. So a little bit about Stevenson's life. He was a very ill child. He was very gangly, um, and because he would be ill so often, he was frequently 
taught by private tutors. For most of his early school years, but kind of going up right up until he went to university, the nurse that helped raise him and took care of him, uh, he actually dedicated that collection of children's poetry to her. Okay. Um, I guess she would read the Bible to him while he was ill. He actually only learned to read at around seven or eight years old, but way before this, probably since he was able to speak, he was telling stories orally to his parents. Mm-hmm. Because of his ill health, uh, his family moved around a lot, and that continued into his adult years. Because healthcare isn't good, and so the solution to get better is to move to somewhere warmer. Right. Sure. <laughs> Throughout some of these travels, he wound up meeting this woman named Fanny Van de Grift Osborne, uh, and they became sweethearts. He decided to travel to America to see his sweetheart, Fanny, again, um, and... This is in August 1879, and he did this without telling his parents. He did this against <laughs> the advice of his friends. During this trip to America, he decided to travel on a ship in second class to increase the adventure of the journey. Okay, good good choice for a dude with poor health his whole life. No kidding. Uh, so he was deathly ill when he finally landed. Yeah. That was in 1879. The following year, he and Fanny got married. Um, and he had this comment about looking more like a, a walking corpse than a bridegroom. So then between 1880 and 1887, he and Fanny and um, one of her kids moved around a lot between England and Scotland due to his health. And yet these are the same years that would be his most productive. The time period that he's writing in is called the Victorian era. And this era is kind of 1837 to 1901. It's the period of Queen Victoria's reign. And uh, a little bit about what's going on during this time to give some context to the context he was writing in. There's a big increase in colonialism, of course. England is increasing its imperial power. Ireland's Great Famine would happen during this time. As far as like literature and probably even philosophy, during this time there's a push against the previous eras focus on rationalism, so reason being like the biggest thing, and this period would bring in romanticism, which I kind of talked about during the Frankenstein episode with its increased focus on like emotions. Mm -hmm. Along with this push against rationalism is this resurgence of Gothic literature. Frankenstein was 1818, so technically before this era, but within the Victorian era we see the picture of Dorian Gray in 1891, Dracula in 1897, and of course Jekyll and Hyde in 1886. Yeah. Also something that I found interesting is during this time frame is increased interest in mysticism and paranormal events. Yeah. This is when people would have parties where they would try to contact the dead and try to like take photographs of ectoplasm and stuff like that. Yeah, as we mentioned in our, uh, gosh, our fourth episode, Seance and Chill. Yeah. <laughs> um, you get Aleister Crowley spinning out of this era, and yeah, for sure. Totally. Uh, as far as morality, because Jekyll and Hyde has a focus on morality. Yeah, of course. Um, the Victorian era can kind of be characterized by people having this opinion of restraining your sexual urges, having a strict code of conduct and a strict personal code of conduct, and a low tolerance and opinion of crime. Yeah, it was a very um, 
repressed era, was it not? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll say yes with a question mark. Well, I because guess... Because some historians are questioning whether that is actually accurate or not. Kind of part of why we have this idea of the Victorian era being repressed sexually is because there was a crackdown on brothels during this time okay. in uh, the UK, uh, mainly from like Puritan-type movements. Mm-hmm. With the brothels being shut down, prostitution increased because now it's no longer like in a private right. area. Like it's str- now like on... street prostitution. Yeah. 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 And during this time also is Jack the Ripper around 1888. So yeah. there's a lot of condemnation on prostitution and therefore like sexual acts as kind of like an extension of that. One writer, Henry Mayhew, um, he condemned slums as hives of immoral behavior. Right. Uh, where there'd be illegitimate births and the hub for prostitution. Uh, a, uh, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Exactly. Yeah, if you're, if you're poor, you're immoral. Yeah, and Mayhew, as well as Charles Dickens and many others, would kind of latch onto this idea of prostitution as a social ill. Of course, Dickens would offer a bit more of a sympathetic view mm. for sex workers, but still was emblematic of immorality. Um, therefore, morality equals no sex. Mm-hmm. Back to Jekyll and Hyde. In episode six, I explained how Stevenson saw Hyde as no more sexual than any other. Stevenson didn't like the depiction in Thomas Sullivan's 1887 stage adaptation, where Jekyll was paragon of virtue and Hyde was the sexual deviant. Yeah, I mean, in the original novel, Jekyll's like, not necessarily good, Jekyll's just normal, and hides all of his, all the things that he can't do in polite society or whatever, right? Yeah. The fact that Stevenson didn't favor that depiction of Hyde, I think, is worth mentioning. Given the time period's philosophies pushing for uh, romanticism versus rationalism, and during this time we even have Charles Darwin's Origins of Species being published, Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense if Jekyll and Hyde is originally this question of reason versus emotion, societal norms versus not giving a shit, basically. Sure, okay. But it's also really easy to see how these themes can be extrapolated to sexual repression versus sexual expression, and further, moral good versus immoral bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Just a side note, because I mentioned this in episode six, but I think it's it's one of my favorite facts about Jekyll and Hyde. The play adaptation starred Richard Mansfield, and when they toured England, that was right around the same time that Jack the Ripper started murdering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Richard Mansfield was a suspect because of how good his portrayal of Jekyll and Hyde on the stage was. Yeah, people always seem to have a, a really hard time sometimes separating actors from their roles. Yeah. So now I'm going to give a little bit of a plot summary of the novel, and I will just point out that the novel is a mystery. Yes. Going in, you don't, you aren't supposed to know that Hyde is Jekyll. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's kind of impossible to do that because it's so ingrained in our cultural memory. Mm-hmm. Again, this is paraphrasing this novel. These two friends um, are talking to each other, and they're both friends of Dr. Jekyll. And they mention that they saw this guy named Hyde run down a kid and Jekyll paying money to the parents to, you know, keep it quiet. 
the other friend also mentions how Jekyll had just recently changed his will so that all of the money and possessions will go to Hyde. And so they start to worry that Hyde is this bad guy blackmailing Jekyll. Mm-hmm. Hyde kills a guy using Jekyll's cane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of gets dealt with by the police, but the friends think that Jekyll's covering for Hyde. After that murder, Jekyll has kind of gone back to normal, and Hyde has disappeared, and Jekyll then starts to seclude himself away from his friends and to be kind of left alone. Uh, He writes to a friend for help to get materials, and to that friend, he reveals himself as Hyde, and the friend actually dies of fright. So Jekyll's other friends uh, finally break into his house, basically. Hyde is found appearing as having committed suicide in Jekyll's clothes. Mm-hmm. From this reveal, then it goes into explaining, like, in the novel, it explains Jekyll's motivations and everything like that with, like, trying out these experiments. Hyde was meant to be used to indulge in vices without being detected, and once he started to not be able to control the transformations, they would just happen... Without the use of the potion, Jekyll decided to, uh, quote, bring the unhappy life of Jekyll to an end. Yeah. Yeah, because they find, like, a, a big letter or something from him explaining the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I will just note as well that uh, Jekyll is described as an older, large, amiable man, mm-hmm. um, whereas Hyde is younger... He's self-indulgent, uncaring, and physically smaller. Yeah, there was sort of a lot of ideas at play with, like, essentially, in a way, like, Jekyll's, like, this buttoned-down, respectable, middle-aged man going through, like, a bit of a midlife crisis, and Hyde's, like, his way to, like, indulge in all these things that young men get to do, and that, like, Hyde is smaller than Jekyll because he's he's just an aspect of Jekyll. He's not, like, a full person. Yeah, yeah. So that's the plot summary of the novel. As I mentioned earlier, the first stage adaptation that was put up the following year after the book was published, that kind of shows how popular this thing was. Yeah. It changed the plot quite a bit, really with just the characterizations and summarizing things a bit for it to be a stage adaptation. As far as the films that we've seen, of the two shorts... The 1912 Jekyll and Hyde film that we saw had Hyde crouching over. He beats up a priest. Mm -hmm. And the other notable thing about that one is that he, as Hyde, or is it as Jekyll, commits suicide. Like, we see him take poison. Yeah, yeah, he takes poison and kills himself, yep. And then in 1913, we had King Baggett's version, which we did not view favorably, and that had King Beckett kind of like crouching down and hopping around at each at people to scare them somehow. And uh, in that one, the man he kills is back to being an MP. Um, and does he have the fiance by that point? I think so. Yeah, I think the his fiance being the daughter of the man he kills, I think was something introduced in the play. Okay. And then the King Beckett 1913 one ends with. Hyde being shot. Yeah. And then the last one we saw was the John Barrymore one from 1920, which took its time to tell its story, but I think we found parts of it pretty convincing. I think the main thing it introduced was 
the father of his fiance being the person who introduces him to like sin or whatever because these have all followed this track of turning Jekyll into like the paragon of virtue and then the other thing that Barrymore version introduced was the concept of having like the dancing hall girl who's right. like Hyde's love interest whereas Jekyll's love interest is the daughter of this MP right and then that one he takes some pills that will, like, he takes poison. It's the poisoned Italian ring that the dancing hall girl gives him. Yeah, and he takes it, um, and it kicks in once he's already turned back into Hyde, uh, and is threatening his love interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then in that version, that was the version where Hyde's makeup was like he had the very tall, kind of thin, pointy head, and stuff like that. Yeah, everything was very elongated. Elongated. Oh, and he was, because he was meant to be, like, spider-like. Because remember, because he appears as a spider in that one weird dream. Yeah, yeah. So, after the phenomenal success of the Dracula and Frankenstein films at Universal, uh, other Hollywood studios wished to pounce on the horror film trend while the going was good. Because no one really knew how long this trend would last, how long it would take before censor boards or the public turned against it. So, um, Paramount Pictures, uh, they retained the rights to film Jekyll and Hyde from their earlier 1920 version, starring John Barrymore. They'd done that one, so they still had the film rights. And initially, they were actually planning to make just, like, a straight sound remake of that version with Barrymore in the role again. But Barrymore, by this time, was contracted to MGM, and arranging a loan uh, could have proven very risky if his alcoholism got too out of control. Mm. Uh, Because in order for an actor to appear in a film by a studio they weren't contracted to, the studio that wanted them had to pay a loan fee to the studio that had them. So if Paramount paid the fee and then Barrymore couldn't perform, they'd be out money. The project was put on hold, that is, until an acclaimed young director was given his pick of project by Paramount boss Adolf Zucker, and that director picked Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, sort of similar to what happened with James Whale and Frankenstein, to mm-hmm. be honest. This young director's name was Ruben Mamoulian, and he was born in 1897 in Tiflis in the Russian Empire, uh, which is now Tbilisi in Georgia. His mother was an Armenian theater director, and in 1922, Mamoulian relocated to England to direct theater. In 1923, he moved to New York to teach drama, and by 1925, he was head of the drama department at the Eastman School, Uh, and then he had a career directing Broadway plays from 1927 to 1929. So a pretty meteoric rise in his career. Mm -hmm. His first feature film, 1929's Applause, came at the early days of sound features and was considered extraordinary for the way that Mamoulian broke free of what were considered the constraints of sound film. Applause has location shooting, moving camera, two-track sound, uh, so that you could have overlaid sounds, as well as visual symbolism interacting with whatever sound was happening on screen at the time. It was seen to be a big technical advancement. Do you think that's because of his background in theater, like this extensive background? Possibly. Uh, And he also just, he'd never directed any silent film either. Like, his first film was this sound film, so I don't think he had that prejudice or bias of having done it the old way and needing to learn a new way. He Mm. could just come in and do it. Nice, yeah. 
His second film, City Streets, in 1930, was another technical achievement in pushing forward the possibilities of film. And so Paramount, who had backed both of these films, gave Mamoulian his pick of whatever project he wanted to do, and he chose to resurrect Jekyll and Hyde. Adolf Zucker, uh, the studio head, kept pushing various screen heavies and villains to be cast in the title role, uh, but Mamoulian rejected them all. He argued that what was needed was an actor who could play Jekyll, not Hyde. Mm. His choice of a pretty boy comedian secondary lead, Frederick March, turned out to not only be successful, but in a way highly ironic. You see, Ernst Frederick Bickel, who was born in 1897 and initially had a career as a banker until an emergency appendectomy in 1920 led him to reconsider his life choices, <laughs> uh, after which he began acting as Frederick March. Uh, in 1930, he earned an Oscar nomination for his role as Tony Cavendish in a film called The Royal Family of Broadway, which was a fictionalized portrayal of the Barrymore family. Oh. Tony was the John analog. <laughs> Frederick March had literally played John Barrymore in a movie and gotten an Oscar nomination for it. <laughs> March began to be called by the press the new John Barrymore, but he quickly found that it was in reference to his profile, not his acting ability. Just as John Barrymore had been when he appeared in Jekyll and Hyde, Frederick March wanted to prove he wasn't just a pretty face. Mamoulian's version of the film can be seen as a further evolution of previous adaptations. It retains the 1920s version's good girl, bad girl structure, uh, but better integrates it into the plot and themes as Mamoulian pulled together these many disparate elements that started to be grafted on to the story uh, in order to present a Jekyll who would finally have a motivation mm. for his actions. For the bad girl role of Ivy Pearson, Mamoulian picked actress Miriam Hopkins, whose career had just taken off with films like Fast and Loose, The Smiling Lieutenant, and 24 Hours. Hopkins specialized in taking on risque roles that traded on dark sexuality. Uh, the story of Temple Drake was about a woman raped and sold into sex slavery. Designed for Living featured a menage a trois between Hopkins, Frederick March, and Gary Cooper. Uh, Hopkins, on and off set, earned a reputation as a temperamental diva and as a scene stealer, and often entered into feuds with actresses like Claudette Colbert and Betty Davis. Her career would suffer a severe downturn following the enforcement of the Hollywood Production Code, uh, limiting future appearances and censoring past ones, including cutting eight minutes out of her 13 minutes of screen time in Jekyll and Hyde when the film was re-released after the enforcement of the code. Oh. For our listeners who don't know what the Hollywood Production Code uh, was... It was a standard that started to be enforced in 1934 about, like, what could and couldn't go in a movie in terms of content. And if you did not get a stamp of approval from the Hayes office, your film generally couldn't be seen in theaters because most theaters had agreed that they wouldn't show films that didn't meet the production code. And this was all done, of course, to uh, placate, like, decency leagues and stuff like that. It's also called the Hayes Code. Yeah, that's after William Hayes, who is head of the office that oversaw the code. Uh, actress Rose Hobart got the somewhat thankless role of the good girl, Jekyll's 
fiance Muriel Carew, but her life off-screen was defined by her fight for better working conditions for actors as a board member of the Screen Actors Guild, activism which saw her branded as possessing communist sympathies in the 1950s. When she was subpoenaed, she said, quote, In a democracy, no one should be forced or intimidated into a declaration of his principles. If one does yield to such pressure, he gives away his birthright. I'm just mulish enough not to budge when anyone tries to force me. Uh, she was blacklisted from Hollywood after that. Oh. To shoot the film, Amulian chose cinematographer Carl Struss, who was the inventor of the soft focus lens. Oh. By this time in the 1930s, Struss was an experienced and distinguished cameraman, having worked in the industry for years. He had shot the original Ben Hur in 1925 and had won an Oscar for cinematography for 1927's Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans. I didn't realize soft focus was another lens. I thought it was something put in front of the lens. Yeah, you can do filters and stuff for soft focus, for sure. The soft focus lens that he invented was for still photography, uh, not for cinematography. Oh, okay. For Jekyll and Hyde, Carl Struss worked very closely with makeup artist Wally Westmore to create the seamless in-camera effects for the film's startling transformation sequences. Westmore was son of makeup artist George Westmore, one of the earliest makeup men in Hollywood. George's six sons, Monty, Perk, Ern, Wally, Bud, and Frank, would all become the top makeup men at all the Hollywood studios in the golden age of American cinema. To this day, the Westmore family continues to be synonymous with special effects makeup. Uh, Michael Westmore did all of the makeup on various modern incarnations of Star Trek. Uh, his daughter is the host of the makeup reality TV show Face Off, <laughs> and so on. That's really cool. For Jekyll and Hyde, the transformations were accomplished by applying the makeup to Frederick March in layers of contrasting colors, and then by using colored filters, which matched the makeup color, uh, the makeup could be rendered invisible on black and white film. Then it would seem to change with the changing of the filters. Uh, so you would match the filter with the makeup so that you wouldn't see the makeup, and then when you remove that filter, all of a sudden the makeup would be there. Uh, this trick was not revealed until the publication of the book The Celluloid Muse in 1969. Westmore chose a simian-inspired appearance for Hyde to imply that repressed evil was the repressed animal part of humanity, having the makeup become more and more extreme with each passing transformation. The film premiered on New Year's Eve, 1931. It received highly positive reception from critics and audiences, grossing $1.25 million on a budget of $535,000. And it was nominated for the Best Cinematography and Best Adapted Screenplay Oscars, while Frederick March would win the Oscar for Best Actor for his performance in this film. Great. The film's high level of violence and relatively frank discussion of sexual themes proved problematic for re-releases after the enforcement of the production code in 1934, resulting in the loss of eight minutes upon reissue in 1936, as I mentioned earlier. When MGM chose to remake the film in 1941, they still felt so threatened by the quality of this version that they found it necessary to buy the negative and all available prints for the price tag of $1.25 million. 
The film was therefore believed lost for many years, but it has been recovered, it has been restored, it is currently available uncut on DVD, as well as streaming from YouTube, uh, the Microsoft Video Store, and the PlayStation Video Store. As for the remake, which starred Spencer Tracy in the title role, Frederick March sent Tracy a telegram, thanking him for providing such a boost to March's acting reputation. <laughs> and with Spencer Tracy, that's where we get the Jekyll, rather yes. than Jekyll. That's right, from Tracy's strong American accent. Yeah. All right, well, if it's on YouTube, then is it on our YouTube playlist? Yeah, so there will be a link to the official YouTube release on our YouTube playlist. Great. People can find that playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, we will watch the film. Hopefully you'll watch along with us, and we will see you on the other side. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude while we watch the film, and then we'll be back to discuss 1931's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. See you then. Scare you then. Ooh. Hey listeners, a quick trigger warning for the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde for domestic abuse and violence against women. Alright, and we are back from watching 1931's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde directed by Ruben Minmoulian and starring Frederick March. It's a good movie. I'm happy that we have included a trigger warning, because I know that this movie can be a little hard for me to get through mm-hmm. uh, at times. Yeah, it's it's very... Um, it doesn't pull any punches with like its depiction of like domestic abuse and domestic violence. Yeah. It's um, pretty on point, really, for like... A horror movie about a dude who takes a potion and turns into someone else, right? <laughs> yeah. Before we, we dive in, how about we do a plot summary? All right. Uh, this version of Jekyll and Hyde starts us off with Dr. Henry Jekyll, who is basically, like, the greatest man. Uh, he, <laughs> like, he's this, like, famous doctor and surgeon, and he speaks at seminars at universities that are highly attended and uh, everyone really likes him and he's really nice to people and you know he he blows off rich duchesses who want him to come see them so that he can you know operate on patients in the free wards and you know he's so engrossed in just being a good guy that sometimes he's late for dinner this is scandalous to general carew who is this stodgy old man and the father of Jekyll's fiance Muriel. Jekyll's kind of characterized as being kind of a very modern person, if, uh... I feel like that's accurate. Yeah, and so he's contrasted against kind of the stodgy old-fashionedness of General Carew, who's very much that kind of like, oh, well, a proper British man, you know, never smiles or does anything but stand there and wax his mustache. <laughs> and so Jekyll's frustrated because he wants to get married to Muriel very soon. And the film doesn't really come out and say it, like, right outright. But it's very clear that the reason why Jekyll wants to get married to Muriel soon is because he, you know, he's, he's so in love with her and so devoted to her. And a big part of that is wanting to express that love physically 
which of course they, they can't do until they get married. But General Carew has this bee in his bonnet about, they have to be married, you know, the same day that I was married. Uh, it has to be exactly the same. And um, so this means they can't get married for like eight months. And this is torture for Jekyll. And he kind of gets into a bit of an argument with the general over it, and they have a bit of a row, and, you know, General Crew doesn't really like him that much. Muriel seems to be pretty understanding of what Jekyll's deal is here, though, and she tries to convince her dad, but it's to no avail. Uh, Jekyll and his friend, Dr. Lanyon, are sort of walking through the streets, and Jekyll's trying to explain to Lanyon he wants to get married so that he can be with Muriel physically and in all of these ways so that when he feels these urges and these impulses now, he doesn't feel like they're wrong. Because now, you know, he wants all those things, but if he has them, it's immoral. So he wants to be able to be good in every sense of the word and be good without feeling like his impulses are these bad things that he has to deny. And Lanyon is just kind of saying like, oh, Jekyll, like, you go too far they have this argument because Jekyll has this theory that there are two parts to every man. There's the upright, moral, good, civilized, noble part, and the bad, animalistic, primitive, impulsive, evil part. And that if only we could separate the two, you know, then the good could go off and just be perfect and, and, and holy and all that, and the bad could go off and, I don't know, you know, do what animals do, and, and we wouldn't have to bother with it anymore. The good would achieve higher greatness, and the bad would be sated. Right. Uh, and Lanyon's just like, this is, this is preposterous. And um, while they're walking through the streets, they hear a scream, and there's this prostitute named Ivy Pearson who's getting beat up by a customer of hers uh, on the street, and Jekyll, like, jumps in and, like, does, like, a falcon punch on, like, the guy and, like, <laughs> saves her and, like, takes her up to her room and looks after her wounds. And Ivy notices right away that, like, Jekyll's wearing, like, a top hat and a cape and, like, a full evening tuxedo and must be loaded. And, and it's starts... also quite handsome. Yeah, and it's also quite handsome, but, like, loaded. And she starts putting on the charm, trying to kind of seduce him into an evening with her. And, of course, Lanyon comes into the room at the wah-wah-wah, like, the worst moment. They leave, and, you know, Lanyon's like, oh, you're, you're super disgusting, like, Jekyll. Um, even though Lanyon was the one who was totally gawking at her. And there's this great thing that Mamoulian does where, as they're leaving, uh, Ivy's final words, which are like, come back soon, like, continue to repeat over the rest of the scene so that we can kind of, you know, we know what's on Jekyll's mind. As well as, like, a very long fade of mm -hmm. her swinging leg over the bed, overlaid with them walking away. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that this film does technique-wise that help you get into Jekyll's psychology, but we can, we can talk about those after the plot summary's done. Hmm. So, Jekyll whips up this potion where, when he takes it, he transforms into basically Neanderthal man, uh, and he tells his butler, Poole, that this is Mr. Hyde, who's a friend of his, who has like, uh, a key to the back door and, and will come and go every once in a while so that Poole doesn't get too suspicious of what's going on. Jekyll turns into Hyde, particularly after he gets word that General Carew and Muriel are going on, like, a vacation to Bath for some months, and she's away for a really long time, and Jekyll's just getting more and more frustrated and uh, there's this great bit where Poole says, like, oh, well, there's plenty of places around London for a gentleman like you to amuse himself. And Jekyll says, like, yeah, but the whole point is that a gentleman like me can't 
be seen at those places. Uh, so he turns into Hyde and goes looking for Ivy and finds her at a music hall. And they enter into a domestic partnership based on the fact that he's got money uh, so he can provide for her. And also, if she doesn't do whatever he tells her to, he's going to beat the crap out of her. This relationship between them starts that is very much a textbook domestic abuse relationship. There are people in Ivy's life who say like, oh, why don't you just leave him? Why don't you go to the police? And doesn't that ring familiar? And Ivy, you know, saying like she's too afraid of what he might do and, and all this kind of stuff. Hyde basically just really treating her like garbage until... Muriel comes back from her vacation, and so Jekyll stops taking the potion, because now he can go to Muriel, and feeling really remorseful about what Hyde has done to Ivy, he sends her 50 pounds. That's a really interesting thing about this movie, that, like, Jekyll and Hyde are two different people with different agency, but each remembers what the other has done. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ivy gets the money, thinking that, like, Maybe Jekyll can help her with this Hyde problem. She goes to him and, like, begs him to help her. And we can see how much Jekyll, like, has remorse over what Hyde, which is just him, has done. And he promises her that she'll never see Hyde again because Jekyll, like, fully intends to just, like, never take the potion again um, because Muriel is able to convince her father to move up the date of the wedding so that the wedding will only be in a month because Muriel can see that clearly, like, Jekyll's tortured over this. So there's going to be a big dinner where they're going to announce the wedding date. Jekyll's off to the dinner, but he sees a bird get eaten by a cat in a tree in a park. And this is enough to just, like, trigger him turning into Hyde without any potion. He was always calling Ivy his little bird, his little starling. Mm -hmm. So I think it's related with that, too. Mm -hmm. Now that he's Hyde... Hyde knows that Jekyll, you know, promised Ivy she would never see him again. And Hyde, like, hates Jekyll. Uh, and so Hyde goes to Ivy and, in a really horrific scene, uh, strangles her to death and then acrobatic dashes his way out of that building and runs off. From the perspective of Muriel and Lanyon and General Carew and all the high society people at the party, like, Jekyll just never shows up. Mm -hmm. uh, which is enough for, you know, Carew to be like, oh, I never want to see that man again. The problem, though, is that Hyde goes back to Jekyll's place to try and get in through the back door of the laboratory so he can turn back to Jekyll, but he doesn't have the key because Jekyll threw away the back door key when he stopped taking the potion. So he's kind of screwed. So as Hyde, he sends a message to Lanyon telling Lanyon to go to Jekyll's place because Poole, the butler, won't open the door to Hyde. <laughs> he's like, come back later, no yeah. one's home. So the letter instructs Lanyon to take the chemicals that Hyde needs to turn back to Jekyll and bring them back to his place. And then Hyde will meet Lanyon there and collect the chemicals. But when Hyde arrives to get the chemicals, Lanyon's like, mm, no, buddy, like, I want an answer. Like, where's Jekyll? What have you done with him? What's going on? And pulls a gun on Hyde so that Hyde's like, oh, you want to see then? All right. And, like, mixes the chemical in front of him and takes it and turns into Jekyll. And then we get, like, a shot of, like, a candle melting over time to say that, like, and then Jekyll told him the story. Yeah. Um... And Lanyon's basically like, all right, dude, like, you've really fucked up. You're damned. You're screwed. Uh, and Jekyll's saying, well, like, I'm going to go to Muriel and give her up, and that'll be my penance. Uh, so he goes to Muriel, and he calls off 
you know, the wedding, and he's he's down on his knees, and he's he's trying to repent, and then he leaves after telling Muriel that it's off, and then once again, without control, turns back into Hyde. Mm-hmm. And Hyde goes in and assaults Muriel, and hearing this, General Carew comes in, and of course, like, if Hyde is Jekyll's repressed dark side, like, Carew is the guy who, uh, you know, is gonna get the receiving end of that hatred more than anyone else, so Hyde just jumps on Carew and beats him to death with his cane. That attracts a ton of attention, and the cops are on him, and he runs off, and Lanyon shows up, and, you know, the murder weapon's still there, and he's like, oh shit, like, this is Jekyll's cane, and, like, Lanyon knows that Jekyll's Hyde at this point, so he goes, alright, I can take you right to the guy. Hyde makes it to Jekyll's place, turns back into Jekyll, the cops show up, and Jekyll's like, oh, you must have missed him, like, maybe he went out the back way. And so he almost gets the cops to leave until Lanyon shows up too, and is like, nope, like, that's the guy. And right in front of their eyes, he turns into Hyde again. And it's worth stating that, like, every time he turns into Hyde, Hyde's appearance is more and more monstrous. And so there's a brief chase in the laboratory, but finally they shoot him, and he collapses, and once he's dead, he turns back to Jekyll the end. Mm-hmm. What I really like about the ending, too, is it's like this very, very busy chase through the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And then once Jekyll's been shot and he turns back into Jekyll, it's so still and quiet. Mm-hmm. Like, the camera shoots everyone crowding around Jekyll's body, and you just hear the butler kind of crying, mm-hmm. and the camera pans so that we're over, like, this cauldron. But, like, it's, like, maybe ten seconds of just silence. Yeah. After all of this busyness. It's really striking. Yeah, this film has a lot of striking technique. Yeah. Like, this is a movie that you you notice that it's a movie. Like, there's a certain theory of Hollywood filmmaking that became prevalent, which was the idea that, like, the audience shouldn't really be aware of the camera or aware of edits or aware of technique that the film should almost kind of be invisible so that you get... Um, pulled into it more easily. Would that lead into continuity? Yeah, that's continuity editing. That's the whole idea of that kind of thing. And it's, you know, it was about immersion. But Mamoulian doesn't do that here at all. Like, you are aware of his technique, and he makes sure you're aware. And for this reason, Ruben Mamoulian had a bit of a reputation as a (laughs) show-off in Hollywood. But, like, from the very beginning of this movie, you've got these long, elaborate point-of-view shots that are, like, kind of just showing off. (laughs) Um, They use uh, multiple times in these POV shots these mirror tricks where we are Jekyll's POV, the camera is that is, and then the camera will look into a mirror and there will be Jekyll, and of course no camera. It's an easy trick once you know the trick, which is that the mirror is just a window and the actor is just standing on the other side and they've made up the room past the window to look like the reflection of the room the camera's in. But it's really cool, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you don't know the trick. Even when you know the trick, it's cool. Yeah. Um, there are these dissolves, there's these really long crossfades, like you mentioned. There's split screens in this movie, there's dream sequences, there's these extreme close-ups throughout. There's, of course, the transformation sequences, which are, are very impressive even to this day. Yeah. Um, But it isn't just showing off, right? Because, like, all of the technique serves the story. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated you giving a bit of backstory to Mamoulian, because I didn't realize that he grew up in Russia. Yeah, he was was Armenian. Okay. But, like, where he grew up would have been under the control of the Russian Empire at the time. 
yeah, there's this one director, Sergei Eisenstein, who, if listeners have gone to film school, <laughs> you would have either have seen, like, Battleship Potemkin or Strike. And Eisenstein likes to do this thing where it's kind of like a, a more elaborate Kuleshov effect, where you'll see one shot of something happening. So in this case, it's Jekyll getting a bit agitated because Muriel is off on vacation for an extra month. Um, and he's, you know, like, tapping his foot, clearly agitated. And then we get the second shot to something that seems kind of unrelated, but is to give, like, an understanding of the emotion mm-hmm. underlying the first shot. And the second shot is of this cauldron just boiling in this fireplace that is huge. We get another shot of Jekyll, and we see that he's made his decision to drink the potion, and then we cut back to the cauldron, and its lid pops off because it's boiled over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just made me think of, like, it's very, very probable that Mamoulian would have seen some Eisenstein films. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, Eisenstein was a big deal in the film community, and, you know, when he was making those early Soviet montage films... Like, that would have been before the culture exchange between, like, the USSR and the West had shut down. This movie has so many effective things like that in it. Like, the POV shots, I feel like they really bind the audience to Jekyll so that we know that the film wants us to empathize with his position. Totally. I, it reminded me of when you said in the beginning that Mamoulian wanted someone who could play Jekyll, not hire the person to play Hyde. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, the perspective shots really underline that motive. Yeah, I think if there's like a dramatic goal that this movie is trying to achieve and succeeds at, it's presenting a version of Jekyll and Hyde that answers the question, you know, if Jekyll's such a good guy, why would he want to be Hyde? Mm-hmm. Why would he, like, willingly take this potion? Because in all the other versions, it's just kind of been, like, to prove a theory. Why would he keep doing it? And, like, what was he trying to prove? And this version allows us to really empathize and sympathize with Jekyll and get inside his head, right? Like, the split-screen juxtapositions that show us, you know, Jekyll's world kind of versus Hyde's world. And the way that those long crossfades, like you said, like, allow us to know what's on his mind from one scene to another as things linger. I I actually had a thought about this, Mm -hmm. because I wasn't sure if the fact that this movie is so clear, like as clear as they could probably be with a 1931 film, Mm -hmm. that Jekyll is motivated by sexual desires, Mm -hmm. if that undercuts him, uh, his character, because you could really just belittle the film or belittle his motivations into a guy who's just horny, a guy who just wants to have sex. But I was also thinking, like, the flip side of that, because obviously it's more. There's something more that resonates with us, more than just, oh, a guy wanting sex. Um, I'm wondering if that grounds the tale into something that's more relatable, because we all have these kinds of feelings or frustrations or scares. I think that the other thing that's very significant about this is, and I didn't mention it when I did the plot summary, and I probably should have, this is a period film, right? Like, they don't do the Dracula Frankenstein thing that Universal did where they updated it to contemporary times. <laughs> yeah. they, they keep it Victorian. And the way and the thing about Jekyll's sexual desire is it's framed as Jekyll versus the society around him, right? Like from a modern 2017 perspective, you could look at it and be like, oh, well, this guy's just horny. But like in this conception, it's, you know, Jekyll saying like, hey, 
I'm in love with Muriel, I want to have sex with Muriel, I can't till we get married, and we can't get married for eight months, and that's super frustrating. And everyone around him saying, like, how could you even say that? That's super indecent. You can't even admit you have those feelings. Like, that's so wrong for you to even say that. You should just be okay with waiting, because otherwise that's admitting that you want to have sex, and that's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's about Jekyll trying to say that, like, there's nothing wrong with, like, wanting to have sex. Like, especially with, like, your wife, you know, yeah. like, with the woman who's to be your wife. Like, that shouldn't be... To say, like, yes, what's the difference between getting married now or then, and the, the general says, like, oh, there's such a thing as uh, decent observance, Whereas the idea that, like, you should be waiting a long time to get married so that no one thinks you're getting married just to have sex. And it's like, you know, Jekyll's saying, like, what's wrong with that? And the thing is, is, like, even in 1931, you know, like, you were in a society where there was plenty wrong with that. Where, like, just the act of that, to admit that you just kind of want to have sex, is, like, wrong. And why should it? Right? And I think that's why, like, Jekyll comes across very modern to mm -hmm. me. Um, yeah. Because he has that, that sex positivism, I guess, that, like, no one else in this movie has, right? Yeah, the sex positivity. I find the way that sex is, like, addressed in the movie is very, like, mature. He wants to have sex with Muriel, but he, it's as part of loving Muriel and being with Muriel. I think he's right to call out Carew and Lanyon as these hypocrites. And, you know, he wants to be free of the hypocrisy of wanting something that he can't have that's indecent. And I appreciate that Muriel and Ivy are both pro-sex, too. Yeah, like... Right? Like, Muriel isn't shying away. She's, like, right there with him, but is a bit more observant of those social norms. Yeah, and Muriel has the conflict where she doesn't want to displease her father. Yeah. Which is, like, a very understandable conflict as well, because it's like, as far as Jekyll's concerned, he's like, ah, screw your dad. Like, let's just go and elope or something. But, like, for Muriel, it's like, yeah, but this is my father. Like, I have to live with this guy for the rest of my life, you know? Like, this is... He doesn't go away. Muriel has an arc in this film where she kind of is understanding and supportive of Jekyll, but, like, not willing to go against her dad to by the end where she's, like, sticking up for him and, you know, going up against her dad. And it's, you know, she's kind of in, like, the Elizabeth and Mina mold, but she has way more of, like, an arc than mm -hmm. those characters get. Definitely. Muriel would have been, I think, like, a perfect match for Jekyll had her father not come between them. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you see that she's, like, on his level. The thing I love is, like, when she does stand up to General Carew because he gets the comeuppance that I wish Baron Frankenstein had got that we yeah. were talking about last week. Yeah. I think it's clear that the film does not think we should be taking his side, the generals, that is. Like, he's unreasonable at, like, every single turn. And I think it's significant that his murder is the climax, really, of this film when, like, in the Barrymore version, it was kind of, like, the start of the third act where, like, after the murder, that's when people start suspecting Hyde and, like, going after him. And then, like, in the novel, it's just, like, an incident that yeah. occurs that's very unrelated to things. And, like, as the story's developed, it's gotten to this point where, no, this is the climax. Because in this version, like, General Carew is the film's representation of the society that Jekyll feels strangled by. Definitely. It's interesting that you tie the general to Baron Frankenstein mm. because I was seeing a lot of similarities between Jekyll and Frankenstein himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The whole like, oh, I want to go beyond. and 
Yeah, th about the limits of science, um, that the nature of science is to test and push past those boundaries. What is kind of interesting in comparing the two stories is Frankenstein's downfall wasn't because of science, it was because of a very, like, it wasn't from hubris, it was from a failure of parenthood, mm -hmm. whereas Jekyll, it's, it, it feels like it's more of a hubris thing, like he underestimated the power of the dark side. Right, like there's an interesting turn that happens in this movie that doesn't quite happen in Frankenstein, where I think at the start of both stories, the film sympathizes with the scientist, right? Like, I think this movie is on Jekyll's side when he talks about, hey, like, if it wasn't for science, we wouldn't have lighting in the streets and, like, stuff like that. Totally. And I think, similarly, Frankenstein's on Henry Frankenstein's side. They're also both named Henry. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the thing is, is, like, both characters get a second scientist character to bounce these ideas off of and be opposed by, right? Like, uh, Frankenstein has Waldman and Jekyll has Lanyon. But the difference in the two films is that sympathy in the movie Frankenstein never goes away from Frankenstein. Like, that movie's sympathetic with him all the way through. When the monster's attacking him, we aren't supposed to be thinking like, ah, Frankenstein's getting his comeuppance. We're supposed to be afraid for his safety. In Jekyll and Hyde, there is a moment where the film turns against Jekyll and goes, nah, dude, you fucked up. And it's after Hyde murders Ivy and Jekyll goes to Lanyon. Before that moment, Lanyon's been this huge jerk. Like, he's, like, you wonder why Jekyll's even friends with this guy. Their whole interaction is just Jekyll being like, I want to go off to the free wards and help people, and Lanyon being like, your, your conduct's disgusting. Like, <laughs> you're like, what a jerk. No, it, it's not so much your conduct's disgusting. It's, it's more like, help people, but... There's a limit. Well, and it's also like, you're brilliant, so you're wasting your talents on poor people. Totally, totally. Um, and the other thing is, like, he's totally happy with things the way they are. Jekyll's like, ah, science might bring us advancement and progress. And Lanyon's like, nah, I, I just want things as they are. I don't want progress. Then when he goes to Lanyon's and he has this breakdown, Lanyon's like, yeah, like, sorry, dude, but, like, you're not in control. Hyde is. This drug got away from you and you thought you could control this dark side, and you can't. You almost get, like, Lanyon saying, like, you know, and now you're damned to hell. There's going to be no mercy for you. And he's right. He can't control Hyde, because Hyde comes out again after that without Jekyll's control, and there isn't any mercy for him. He gets shot by the police. What got me thinking was, like, in, the, in this part of the film, Lanyon's right. And you almost begin to think, like, was he always right? Because, like, mm. Lanyon's position is to say, like, look, dude, like, you can't, you thought that if you indulged your dark side, you could control it. You can't. That's why the rest of us repress it. And what Jekyll discovers is, like, you can't just give in to your impulses on the weekends. I think one of Jekyll's failings is that he's blindsided to a kind of privilege, and by that I mean, like, he thinks that his indulgence won't hurt anyone. Yeah, like... He the, only what he... sees it as, like, finally I'll be sated, not what effect will this have on other people. Yeah, from his perspective, like, it's a lack of personal responsibility because it seems like his position is that what he does is hide doesn't count. 
Yeah. Right? Like, that he gets to become Hyde, go off and Hyde does whatever Hyde does, and then, like, he feels a little bad about it as G. Cole, but, like, that was someone else, right? It's like going online and being like, well, like, I didn't, like, say all that racist shit. You know, like, it was, you know, GamerFan5000 who said that shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good point, because he doesn't really start to show... He is in Jekyll, doesn't really start to show this kind of remorse until Ivy comes to him. And huge props to March's performance because it's really, like, powerful to see how he's reacting to Ivy. But I have to say that, like, in the scenes that Miriam Hopkins is, like, having to deal with Hyde and then further having to deal with Jekyll to escape Hyde, it is incredible and powerful and uh she she honestly deserves an oscar for that yeah like she's she's so good in this movie ivy is where the film concentrates the horror and the tragedy definitely right like the character is written is a prostitute and she's kind of an extension of the dancing hall girl who was introduced in the 1920 version but in this film she has like a purpose and she's fully integrated into the story in a way that that dancing hall girl was kind of just like a subplot mm -hmm. in this movie like ivy is the plot she's you know the prime victim of hyde's malice uh her presence gives hyde something to do other than just kind of these random violent incidences like you notice that like this is the version where we finally dispense with the goofy trampling of the kid. The original Jekyll and Hyde story is very, like, episodic almost, whereas, like, this is a story. And, like, what happens to Ivy, like, her tragedy is what, more than anything else, makes Jekyll realize that he's gone too far. But, of course, it's too late. Yeah. I think it's telling that, like, Jekyll doesn't even send the 50 pounds to Ivy until after he's decided he's not going to become Hyde again. Like, it's like he does all this stuff as Hyde, and then when it's done, he's like, okay, I'm going to send her 50 pounds so that I can feel better about myself. I, I think it's interesting how the violence that Hyde does doesn't ramp up. Mm. It's not like, you know, uh, first he, like, punches a guy, and the next he murders a guy. Like, mm -hmm. it's always clear that his capacity for violence is always seen. You can see it in even just the first scene of Ivy and Hyde in their apartment. Like, she's already having bruises. Mm -hmm. um, he grabs her neck in a few different ways, and that's ultimately how he murders her. Mm -hmm. His capacity for murder is, has already been set up. There's no point where... I, I feel like the film is saying, like, ah, oh, but if only, like, Hyde or Jekyll hadn't, like gone this far. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, once Hyde is let out, that's the end. There's never a point where Hyde is charming. Yes. Or, like, attractive, right? Like, it's not this thing where Ivy made the bad choice to go with him. Like, he's dominating her from minute one by just saying, like, by being violent, you know? Hyde is so interesting in the way that he's portrayed, because he's portrayed as, like, He's portrayed as the id, right? Like, he's yeah. just the, the inner impulses and instincts let out and let free. I kept comparing him in my head to Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, just because those are the last two movies we watched. And, like, Hyde is way more active and energetic, right? Like, he leaps around like an acrobat, which I think suits the fact that he's, like, supposed to kind of be like a primate in his appearance, that he's, like, got this very, like, acrobatic sort of fighting style, and he's consciously and aggressively violent. 
Dracula did what he needed to do to survive, right? But there's never really, like, a sense of, like, malice or hate towards his victims. Like, you never get the sense that Dracula hated Lucy or hated Mina. He hated Van Helsing. Right, but he doesn't... But that's just because Van Helsing happened to step in his way. Sure. And then, like, Frankenstein's monster killed people out of either ignorance or fear. But Hyde, Hyde's a murderer, he's a torturer, he's a bully, he's an abuser, he kills people without a second thought, because Hyde is just impulses unleashed, right? At first, like, you talk about his capacity for cruelty, I do think his capacity for cruelty grows. Because I think in that first scene where he's first unleashed and he goes to the music hall, he's just kind of impulsive. You know, people don't like him because of the way he looks, so he immediately just lashes out at them, right? And stuff like that. I think he does become more cruel because in, it's in his second scene with Ivy, the scenes after that, that he starts playing more mind games with her. Mm. Right? Where you see the manipulation. Where they're like, oh, if you go anywhere or tell anyone or do anything, what happens is you see him start to revel in his violence more. Where, like, he... At first he's just violent in the way that, like, a caged animal is violent. Or someone that you've cornered is violent. And then he gets more it's not that he gets more violent he gets more cruel in his violence because he starts taking enjoyment out of like the fear that his violence produces definitely i would agree with that i find it really interesting how the film makes these similarities between Jekyll and Hyde it does this in explicit shared dialogue where when Jekyll first meets Ivy, he comments on her garters being too tight and circulation doctor mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, and then Hyde comments on her garters in like the scene in their apartment. But then there's also like just their clear attitudes about the hypocritical gentry that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me wonder, because Hyde hates Jekyll. Yes. I wonder if Jekyll hates Jekyll. I think you've really hit the nail on the head with something there. I think that's a really amazing insight. It's, you know, I I, I said this before, like, they have, they clearly remember what the other guy does, right? Like, Hyde talking about Ivy's garters is him mocking Jekyll. And it's also one of the reasons why Ivy thinks that, like, Hyde is supernatural. Like, she is constantly bewildered by the fact that Hyde seems to know things he couldn't possibly know, but of course it's because he knows things that Jekyll knows, right? Mm -hmm. And I find, like, that psychology so fascinating. Because, yeah, Jekyll clearly, like, he calls Lanyon and Carew hypocrites over and over. What's brilliant is that, like, Hyde knows that in using Hyde as an outlet, Jekyll is just the kind of hypocrite he didn't want to be. Jekyll's using of Hyde is just as hypocritical as, like, a gentleman who like, frequents a brothel, but then pretends that he's against prostitution, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's the exact same type of hypocrisy. Like, Hyde, because he's Jekyll's dark side, like, he knows all of Jekyll's secrets. And so, like, Hyde hates Jekyll for being uh, a hypocrite the same way that Jekyll hates people for being hypocrites. But Hyde knows that, like, Jekyll's a hypocrite too, right? And I think think the fact that you've hit on the idea that, like, Hyde is Jekyll's own self-loathing is so brilliant... Because I think it's true in the movie, but I also think that, like, that kind of self-loathing is at the heart of what is the cause of so much abusive violence. Mm-hmm. Abusers who lash out at other people and torture other people are in some way torturing themselves as well. The portrayal of Hyde's abuse 
and assaults on Ivy are, like, remarkably on point. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that he says he loves her while he dominates her, the way that he calls her it, uh, the way that everyone tells her to just go to the police, and of course she can't. But the thing that I really appreciate about this film is that, like, it never blames her. Yeah. It's never her fault, right? Like, she's presented to us as this cheerful girl who, you know, knows exactly who and what she is. And her abuse and her murder are never shown as anything other than sympathetic and tragic. She's never shown as, like, deserving what she gets, right? Like, it's not her fault because she's a prostitute. It's not her fault because, like, she didn't leave or something. It's only ever Hyde's fault and thus ultimately Jekyll's fault what happens to her. Do you think that's also making a comment on society being at fault as well? Yeah, I think I think that's probably not an unfair reading, for sure. There's a, a moment where her landlady says, like, why don't you go to the police? And she says, like, well, why would the police help someone like me? Mm-hmm. Like, this movie, but, like, this even goes back to the novel. It's It's interesting to think about public versus private things, because even with domestic violence it's so often closeted away because it happens in the private sphere. Mm -hmm. And when you do see it happen in the public sphere, like in public spaces, people get bystander intervention training for like how to engage, Mm -hmm. but you can't really. You see a little bit, but most of it happens in the private. And that's the reason why, you know, like people's instinct is to just be bystanders and not step in. Because there's this uncomfortability where there's something ingrained in us that, like, what happens in private is what happens in private. It's none of our business. And so when you see something private come out into the public space, you sort of, your brain almost wants to say, like, oh, well, that's none of my business. That's just between them, right? Like, I shouldn't get involved. The same way that, like, what happens between them once the doors are closed is private. And, of course, like, that's just, like, a psychological trick, right, that your brain's doing on you. And I think... The fact that, like, Ivy feels that, like, why would the police help someone like me? And knowing with today how domestic violence is so prevalent among police officers. Mm, Sure. I don't know if the film was purposely trying to talk about this stuff, because I, I feel like it's... This is, like, something that the film brings in, but it's not directly wanting to focus on it. Sure, sure. Um... If I was having to lead something to talk about domestic violence or victim psychology or abuser psychology, I would show this film. Yeah, absolutely. Miriam Hopkins' portrayal of the fear and the self-loathing as Ivy are like a startling portrayal of a victim of abuse in its in 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 its feeling of truth. In many ways with its frank depiction of all this too common kind of horror. This film kind of separates itself from the more, like, fun kind of Halloween scares that are in the Universal Monster movies. Yeah. Ruben Mimillion uses Jekyll and Hyde to talk about, like, these real issues, these present-day real themes, and confront us with truths about human nature, not just about, you know, the abuse stuff, but also about you know, what the dangers of repressing your desires, the dangers of not sort of balancing your actions with morality, the way that Jekyll's presented his psychology of clearly regretting his actions as Hyde, but unable to stop 
indulging in it, like that to me parallels very strongly with addiction as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like addiction psychology of like knowing what you do, you're doing is wrong and regretting it, but you keep doing it anyway. This is a film that lets us understand why a paragon of virtue would become a, a monster willingly, right? And I think that this film helps us to understand the psychology of people who who engage in actions that seem at odds with their public persona. When you think of people who present themselves as, you know, being good people, and then, you know, word comes out that like, oh, but he, he did this, you know, to his partner or whatever. And not to condone those people, but I think that this film shows us a way of understanding those people. I think this film hits closer to Phantom Carriage than Frankenstein does. Mm-hmm. In its addressing of, like, real-world themes. Because Frankenstein... Frankenstein takes its its talk about outsiders and outcasts and makes it enough of a fantasy that if you were an audience in, member in 1931, I wouldn't expect you to go to Frankenstein and to see the way that Frankenstein is lynched at the end of that movie and read it as a parallel for violence against homosexuals. Mm-hmm. But I think if you were an audience member in 1931 and you went to go see Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you'd have to be pretty dim not to come away understanding that was a story about domestic abuse and, yeah. like, alcoholism and addiction. Yeah. I thought, especially because we're thinking about this movie as it relates to the narrative beats of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. this movie doesn't have a comedic relief. No. No. It's got... The closest thing is Pool the butler. Which isn't really much. No, um, and he gets to be the tragic figure at the end of the movie who's crying over his dead master. And it's worth saying, because I didn't say it before we started watching the film, the actor who plays Poole, Edgar Norton, got his start as an actor in the role of the butler, the 1888 stage version of Cheekle and Hyde starring Richard Mansfield, which I think is great. That is amazing. Yeah, I was wondering if the fact that this film has no comedic relief, if that signals that, yeah, we're we're going into horror. Yeah. Or if they were trying to use the romance between Jekyll and Muriel as that breather. So, like, rather than using comedy as a breather, they were using romance. I don't think so because it's not intermittent. Like, the romance between Jekyll and Muriel is only really not part of the main horror plot at the very beginning. Like, this is a movie that ramps it into that horror stuff and increases as it goes on. And as it increases, like, the scenes between Jekyll and Muriel become fully linked to that, right? Like, the scene where he's down on his knees, like, crying to her isn't relief from any of the rest of the film. I think I think this is a film that goes for it. I think Ruben Mamoulian, like, believed in the story he was telling and committed to it. And you can, you know, see that in every frame and every performance. Like, every actor in this movie is giving it. You know, Rose Hobart as Muriel is is fantastic in a way that, like... May Clark as Elizabeth Frankenstein really, like, had nothing to do, right? Yeah. You know, everyone was dedicated, and you can see that in all the, like, all the elements. Like, the set design is extraordinary, right? The laboratory that's filled with all the the beakers and Bunsen burners and bubbling chemicals. Like, if Frankenstein has the classic electrical laboratory, I think Jekyll has the classic chemical laboratory. Definitely. Including, like, 
the superfluous skeleton, which gets a great moment in the film where Jika like looks over to it and like toasts it before he takes the potion the first time. Or like the bubbling pot, which you mentioned like has a symbolic moment in the film. It's interesting how Ivy sees Hyde as supernatural when Jekyll's laboratory honestly could just be like a witch's laboratory. Right. <laughs> like, like has the collagen and everything. Yeah, like he's got he doesn't make a serum. He doesn't inject himself with a needle. Like he makes, he makes a potion. He makes a potion. Like they're coming out of flasks with little like milliliter measures on them and stuff and they all looks like pretty like scientific, you know, measuring equipment. But then he just mixes it all in a bottle and stirs it and it's smoking and he drinks <laughs> it. And yeah, and he's got a like why does he have a cauldron? Well, I mean other than the symbolism of it bubbling over, the other reason is so that the final shot of the film can be from behind the fire looking through it to Jekyll's dead body so that we know where this guy's going. Talk about going for it. Like, there's a story about the makeup in this film where um, I mentioned that, like, every time he's Hyde, the makeup's more and more. Yeah. And it's more extreme. The final Hyde face, where his, like, eyes are pulled way down and it's really, really extreme, was done with liquid rubber. They took liquid rubber and put it on Frederick March's face and then they molded it and then it dried. So no one had ever really done that before. So they knew how to put it on and how to mold it and how to shape it. They didn't know how to take it off. Oh, no! And this is the last version of Hyde. So this was near the end of the shooting schedule. And Wally Westmore came and they took the makeup off. And according to Rose Hobart, they took most of Frederick March's face with it. Oh, no! And he actually spent three weeks in hospital recovering after that. Oh, my God! Yeah. How long did they have to wait to do the shot of his dead body on the table? <laughs> Maybe they did it before. I don't know. Maybe. They that would make sense. Movies get shot af- out of order. Yeah, and it would make sense that it's like, cool, we, we have all the shots we need of you without the makeup, now put on the makeup. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, when he got the Oscar for this film, Frederick March, like, was like, well, this should really, like, half of this should go to Wally Westmore. He was very gracious about it. Did he, did he Mean Girls it, where he broke the statue and, like, tossed it? No. Okay. No. Let's go into ranking. Okay. Where do you want to rank Jekyll and Hyde? The reason earlier I mentioned Phantom Carriage mm-hmm. is because I think this is a contender for the number one spot. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about, like, how Frankenstein was an improvement on Dracula. I think this is an improvement on Frankenstein. I think this film's even more confident. It's using more film technique. It doesn't feel like a stage play on film and doesn't have the structural plot problems that Frankenstein has where stuff just happens because we needed something to happen here. It doesn't have the comic relief. So I think it pretty easily goes above Frankenstein. So I'm with you. I think I think it is a question of like, does it go above Phantom Carriage? And we need to address that question. So what do you think? Part of why Phantom Carriage is so high and has been so high for so long like it's it's episode nine Mm -hmm. that we watch it is because the fear is so real and grounded in the possibilities of what you yourself might cause and do sure and i think you know phantom carriage treads over a lot of the same ground as jekyll and hyde right like they both address in a way addiction and alcoholism they both address domestic abuse and domestic violence Um, So they have a lot of overlap in what they're talking about. Yeah. What I like about Jekyll and Hyde is that 
I come away horrified, but not depressed for a week, right? Phantom Carriage, you come away, you're just like shaken to your core. Phantom a Carriage is very relentless. The other big difference between the two of them is Phantom Carriage tells us that, you know, the reason why this guy becomes an asshole is because of alcohol. And that the reason he kind of stays an asshole is because there are people who think it's in, like, that it's for the best that him and his wife stay together. And then that breaks down and he dies. And then he gets, like, Christmas Carol, it's a wonderful life into being (laughs) a good person. Mm -hmm. And he repents. And then he gets to be brought back to life and get back together with the wife. And that's supposed to be the happy ending. Right? Where he's sad and remorseful and she takes him back. In Jekyll and Hyde, there isn't a happy ending. Hyde kills Ivy, which is, generally speaking, if you're in a domestic abuse, you know, an abusive relationship, um, the possibility that your partner is going to murder you is more likely than the possibility that your partner's going to be visited by the Grim Reaper, have a vision Mm -hmm. of his past, and decide to repent and become a good person. Generally speaking, if you're in an abusive relationship, you can get out of it and leave, or you can stay and be a victim. I mean, I'm not saying it never happens, but it's much less likely that all the problems get solved and you go forward happy from that moment on. Even after Hyde has killed Ivy... And Jekyll is remorseful, and Jekyll is repentant, and Jekyll does want to change. He doesn't get to control that. In the same way that, like, just because the guy in Phantom Carriage got brought back to life, like, is that a guarantee that he's not going to be an alcoholic? That he's never going to touch the bottle again? We don't know. The movie says sure, because the movie ends on this happy ending. But Jekyll and Hyde tells us, like, no, just because Jekyll wants to be a good person doesn't mean that he will be. And he becomes Hyde again, and his life ends in tragedy as well. I think what's interesting is Phantom Carriage, I mean, it has been quite a few episodes, maybe I'm misremembering, but it always painted main characters... David Holm. David Holm, right, because the episode is titled David Holm is a Jerk. Yeah. It always paints David as choosing to go get drunk. Yes. Choosing to be an asshole Mm -hmm. versus an addiction, like... We Looking at the film, we can see that David Holm is an alcoholic, but it's not treated as an addiction. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I think your description of Jekyll with Hyde is emblematic of that. Yeah, where it's, it's not really his choice, right? He doesn't get to choose. Yeah. The other thing is, like, earlier you were talking about the way that, like, this film brings up these themes of abuse, but isn't doesn't make them, like, doesn't go into them in depth, right? Like when it talks about she can't go to the police, right? The movie doesn't stop and explain to you why she can't go to the police, right? It just says that. And I think that that, to me, is emblematic of the biggest difference between Phantom Carriage and Jekyll and Hyde. Phantom Carriage is a sermon. Jekyll and Hyde is a story. Yeah. like, Like, ultimately, Phantom Carriage is about delivering this moral message, and it's a moral parable meant to deliver that message... You don't really get wrapped up in the the characters and the incidents and the events of Phantom Carriage because you understand that Phantom Carriage is just this inexorable march to what we saw at the beginning of the movie, right? Because it's, it's in flashback. Whereas Jekyll and Hyde, like, it's talking about all these issues, but, like, you can still watch the movie and enjoy it as an entertaining, 
horror film full of thrills and chills. Yeah, I think... I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that means that Mamoulian's 1931 Cheek and Hyde takes the number one spot. Alright, a new number one. Haven't had a new number one since episode nine. <laughs> yeah, it's episode 27. Yeah, wow. Um, Alright, so, entering the list at number one, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, directed by Ruben Mamoulian. If you would like to see this list, you can visit our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and uh, there you can also submit an appeal to our ask box, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. We'd love to chat about whether you agree that uh, Jekyll and Hyde should take the number one spot, or if you think that um, maybe we missed some parallels between this and Frankenstein, and maybe maybe even Dracula. Uh, tell us about it on Twitter. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday and is available on iTunes and SoundCloud, uh, as well as any podcatchers that are linked to those services. I've certainly seen it show up on some other websites and apps. If you do listen to us on iTunes, uh, be sure to leave a review and a rating. Uh, that helps us get noticed on that service. And subscribe! Yes, and if you... Uh, listen to us on SoundCloud. We'd love to get comments as well. Either way, if you enjoy listening to the show and you think there are people you know who would also enjoy hearing a in-depth, highly researched and respectful journey through the early days of horror cinema, uh, be sure to tell them about Scream Scene uh, so that we can grow the audience of the show. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week? I know that the last few episodes I keep saying, next week we've got a treat. I have no clue what we have next week. Do we have a trick? We might have a trick. <laughs> so next week we're watching The Monster Walks from 1932. It's an independent horror film. Not from any of the big studios, just kind of some people jumping on the trend uh, to make something. And I know nothing about this movie. I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it. So I have no clue what we're in for. It's directed by Frank R. Strayer. Be sure to join us next week when we will be watching and discussing The Monster Walks. And if you're as curious as we are to find out what this movie is, uh, don't miss it. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.